0: Design Matters will be back with new episodes starting in April. In the meantime, we'd like to rerun an episode that originally came out in November of 2018. This is Design Matters with Debbie Millman from designobserver.com. For 14 years now, Debbie Millman has been talking with designers and other creative people about what they do, how they got to be who they are, and what they're thinking about and working on. On this podcast, Debbie talks with writer Anne Lamott about her life and her long career.
1: I mean, I'm so in the wrong profession because I hate being criticized, and I just shrink up as like a snail having salt poured on it. Here's Debbie. I'd
2: like to thank two of the patrons that help make Design Matters possible. Is your team designing an app from scratch, rethinking the look and feel of your brand, Maybe taking on something massive like transforming your brand's entire customer journey? Well, don't do it the old way, passing numberless one-off comps through endless emails. Instead, do it all in one place. Do it in Adobe XD, now for free with the new starter plan. Adobe XD combines the ability to both design, prototype, and share in a single solution. Its combination of creativity and productivity lets your teams eliminate bottlenecks and simplify workflows. They can now create an interactive prototype and then share it with teammates and reviewers in a single place. It keeps up with today's creative demands by letting your team work when and where they want across Windows, iOS, the web, and more. Adobe XD has helped big brands change the way they create and review prototypes at a large scale. So don't do it the old way. Use Adobe XD, the design platform for the future, available today for free. For more information, visit xd.adobe.com today. With Wix.com, you have total control of your web design like never before. So join Wix's brilliant community of designers, artists, and creatives at large around the world for free and ask yourself, what will you create today? Anne Lamott covers some big topics in her writing. Alcoholism and drug addiction, single motherhood, Faith and Depression, just to name a few. Yet she does it with grace and humor, and book by book she has built a large audience of dedicated fans, including me. Some of my favorite of her books include Bird by Bird, Some Instructions on Writing and Life, and Stitches, a handbook on meaning, hope, and repair. Her most recent book is titled Almost Everything, Notes on Hope, and if there's something we need right now, More than anything, it's hope. Anne Lamott, welcome to Design Matters.
1: Thank you. I'm so glad to be here.
2: And since you're so known for your literary fiction and your brilliant, soulful nonfiction, I think some people might be surprised to learn that every Thursday you go out and buy People Magazine, U.S. Weekly, and the National Enquirer. Well, in my own defense,
1: I have stopped reading <laughs> the National Enquirer and Us. Okay. I mostly just get People, but yeah.
2: Uh-huh. So, so what is it about that particular? publication that you like so much
1: I just love gossip you know and I just love to get lost and to have kind of an hour off reading about the Kardashians it's like having a big bowl of Cheetos on the page. I understand. I absolutely love Cheetos. Yeah, yeah. And I understand you also have a
2: penchant for reading true crime. I do love true crime, yeah. What is it about it that appeals to you?
1: It's just so lurid and fun and escapist. But I also love to put it together. It's like w- watching a police procedural on TV. You know, it's fun to, like, I guess at Christie, like just figuring out the clues. And But there's some really brilliantly written true crime in my own defense again. Yeah. <laughs> And you were
2: born in San Francisco, Mm -hmm. the daughter of nonfiction writer and novelist Kenneth Lamott, Mm -hmm. and your mother, Dorothy, a journalist Mm -hmm. and lawyer. Mm -hmm. In the aforementioned Stitches, a handbook on meaning, hope, and repair, you write this If you were raised in the 1950s or 1960s and grasped how scary the world could be in Birmingham, Vietnam, and the house on the corner where the daddy drank, you were diagnosed as being the overly sensitive child. There were entire books written on the subject of the overly sensitive child. What the term meant was that you noticed how unhappy or crazy your parents were. Also, you worried about global starvation, animals at the pound who didn't get adopted, and smog. What a nut. And you've described yourself as a sensitive child. What did you make of the particular world around you at that time?
1: Well, I held my breath. I just was so worried and I just came a certain way, and that was pretty tightly wired, and so grownups were always helpfully saying that I should get thicker skin, Mm. like, i.e. be a completely different child than the one I was, and I had a big open heart, and no one sought to say that's a beautiful way to be, you know, and what instead we were intellectuals we were very snappy pieces of cheese and and we um were atheists and so what i was encouraged to do was to figure things out break the code and um and scoff at anybody with any religious faith or past so what i did was uh, i tried to just get through without um being just destroyed by it all i was really afraid of dinosaurs why because there wasn't that much on TV, but there were always a lot of shows that involved dinosaurs. And I just remember being terrified. I took my partner to where I lived the other day, near where I lived, and I showed him the streets where I ran home literally in terror, almost to the point of blacking out with adrenaline and fear because of the dinosaurs. But I think it they represented everything that was erratic and... And, and threatened to the life of a very small child at the time. Like some people might, some little kids might be afraid of, of uh, dogs. But it's just, it's symbolic of everything red and toothy and scary about the world, which could be your own parents. Yeah. And so I became a super, super achiever, and that seemed to help everybody, and it kept me from feeling too panicky most of the time because I studied and I, I achieved, and... Uh, uh, so I had a lot of tools. I learned a lot of tools for surviving in that the kind of stress that you encounter in a really unhappy family. You make them happy. <laughs> you become their flight attendant and you get them things and you become mommy's big girl helper and daddy's wife. And and so I had a lot of tools to bear. Uh, I had migraines at five, and that was very, very scary because you— I don't know if—you don't have migraines, so you? I don't. But you you feel them. You sense them coming. You can hear them coming. It's like having a mosquito in the room, and you don't have the vocabulary for it, but you just know it's all over for England. You know, my mother's from Liverpool, so it was always being said that things were all over for England. And when I would get a migraine, I'd have to lie on the floor— with a tile floor in in school or wherever you were. And that was humiliating because people would always come in. You couldn't have the whole bathroom to yourself. So I um, I was dancing as fast as I could, which I think brought on the migraines, to help mom and dad be happy and to raise my baby brother who's five years younger and to do so, so, so well that I felt that I was of value. And I really had to unlearn all of these these survival tools in order to have a rich and Vibrant, vital sense of any immediacy at all in the world, because I was always trying to stay one step ahead of the abyss.
2: You've said that your parents were cold and remote, and they spoke in clipped phrases with
1: each other. My, they were both warm. Everyone loved my parents.
2: Yeah, but with each other, and they spoke in clipped phrases of erudite contempt for each other. Mm-hmm. What made you, or what do you think motivated you to become the overachiever as opposed to the Mm self-destructor?
1: Well, I was both. I was two mints in one, yeah. I um, was an overachiever, and everything I did was self-destructive. I didn't know how to eat. I lived on sugar when I was small and tiny, and then when I became a teenager and I gained a bunch of weight and I became a girl, a fleshy, sturdy person, I started trying to diet and then I became bulimic. I mean, I it was really like a double life, you know, because I was a tennis star all through my teenage years and and inside I just Felt that I was insane or defective, and but everyone loved me too. I was raised by two parents that everyone loved, and I made sure that everyone loved me. But you can get addicted to that people pleasing, you know. And if I realized when I started being a public person, maybe when I was about 30, that there could be a hundred people who loved my work and had come to hear a, a lecture or a reading, and there'd be one cranky guy whose wife had dragged him there, and that would be all I could think about like, how can I get him to like me? I had a lot of growing up to do and had a lot of healing to do. I got sober when I was 32, which was 32 years ago, and, and that was when I began to look at how hard I was on myself and how I was still holding my breath.
2: As a writer, your dad hung out with other writers, and in one description that was both, I think, horrifying and in your way of trying to, I think, also be witty about your house back then you've likened it to an advent calendar um, and you said people used to come to our house and drink you'd open a door and there'd be people passed out or the wrong people kissing each other if we said anything to my parents they'd say oh honey for christ's sake we'd all just been drinking given that role that it would play in your life later on what did you make of all that frivolity at such a young age
1: Boy, it didn't feel like frivolity to me. It was just terrifying to see Mandy's husband in our bathroom kissing, you know, Greg's father or or two men kissing. But I was raised to help everybody feel really great about being at our house. I was I was raised to be a great conversationalist. I was a reader, you know, but like you probably were at 4 or 5 and I was saved and redeemed by books and if I could talk about books or talk about the National Geographic with grown-ups and kind of keep them distracted from the their efforts to feel alive and you know and not has been and not used up, then everybody liked me and then mom and dad were happy and then there was this Reaganomic trickle down that the (laughs) kids would be nourished and and then we would all be okay for that night. So I was raised by smart people to be an extremely smart conversational presence at our house. And so it really seriously was like being an intellectual flight attendant and I was really, really good at it. But now I still don't go out for dinner with people very rarely, only my very best friends and Neil, or my my brothers, because I feel so much pressure, to have keep the conversation going because that was our job, and to make sure that everybody felt included and that you didn't overstep your bounds by talking about something intimate or real, but that you were charming and uh, and pleasing.
2: I know when you were, I think about age six, you wanted to be Pippi Longstocking. Mm-hmm. How come?
1: She was free. Her father was um, the king of a cannibal island somewhere, and I can't remember what happened to her mother, but she had a horse. Did you read him? Did you? I did. I yeah, wanted yeah. her braids. One, one Halloween, beautiful. I put wire
2: in my, my braids to be 50-long She had 50-long fabulous stocking.
1: braids that I thought stuck it was clever. straight out. Yeah, it was. It really was. You did really well, Debbie. And <laughs> she had one black sock and one brown sock, and I often did too, but I, did, I didn't want to. I didn't mean to. We just, you know, we weren't on top of the laundry. We didn't have enough money, and— um, she had a monkey, and she had a horse. was a monkey, Mr. Nilsen, and she had a horse. And a great dress. And a great dress, and she just had such such a joy for living an adventure, and um, she had everything I wanted to be. She just loved life. She was free, and she was silly, and she was adventurous, and she was on top of her game. Now, I understand that Madeline Langle's
2: wrinkle in time changed your life. Yes. How so?
1: It was about children with, whose father was lost, and it was about the search for truth and and connection. And love. And love. These strange, two smart little children, these really sensitive, two, and the strange little brother yes. who was so funny. And it was about real stuff, and it was also so spiritual. I mean, to her spiritual, Madeline Longo stuff is so... Trippy and beautiful, both things. And the book was like that for kids. And it was about strange little kids like me.
2: You started writing around the age of seven or eight, and one of your early works was a poem about the astronaut John Glenn. Mm -hmm. Your teacher read it aloud, and looking back on it, you've said, It was a great moment. The other children (laughs) looked at me as though I had learned to drive. And your teacher submitted it to a collection, and it won an award. And you saw your work in print for the very first time. Mm -hmm. Is that when you decided you wanted to be a writer?
1: I remember doing some writing for my dad, but I remember being six, and my dad sending me a postcard. He was traveling for some, probably Horizon, which was a travel magazine that was really big back then, and he sent me a picture of a snowy owl, a baby snowy owl, and he wrote a chick, I guess you would call it, and he said, look at this funny little guy. Would you write me a story about him? And so I did, And um, but also in school and in the blacktop and in classroom... I just had a gift. I could tell a story so that if if the three of us were there and something happened on the blacktop, I would be the one that you would look to. You may have been too to tell the story because I kind of plunge in somewhere and I would be able to organize a you know some strange thing, like that somebody had stole J.B. Halpern's lunch, you know, and that <laughs> and and everybody was just stunned. And then the bad child had been taken off to the principal. I mean, it was like you know. Bay of Pigs or something, and I could tell the story. I just had a gift. I don't know. Some kids are musical, which I wasn't, but I could tell you what what I'd seen. Yeah. As you were growing up,
2: you mentioned that your parents were atheists, and yet today you write often about your strong faith, which you said would horrify your father if he were still alive. And I understand that as a kid you would pray in secret. Mm -hmm. How did you find faith while growing up in the absence of it?
1: Well, one of the reasons my father hated Christians so much was that he'd been raised by Presbyterian missionaries god's frozen chosen they're called in Tokyo in the right after the first world war, and he just found them so cold and so without love they didn't hold him and love him and tell him they loved him. So, of course, I ended up being a Presbyterian, but way after he died. But um, I always found religious families. My first best friend was um, the daughter of a Christian science healer. I just was so hungry and thirsty for that, for talk of love and God, and that I was a precious and perfect child of God, that I was beautiful, which I didn't know. No one at our house thought that, apparently, and— um, I love the sacred ritual of Buddhists and of Hindus. I just, something inside of me can, it's like if I, it would be like being in Morocco and hearing an English language radio station. I just come alive. I'm so relieved to have this um, spiritual and sacred talk and ritual and um, instruction and scripture. I just always would feel both really relaxed and really enlivened upon hearing it. So I always found religious friends, and we had a a family that was Jewish that we were close to. It was kind of okay to be Jewish because you'd come that way, so you weren't judged (laughs) harshly by my parents. And you could be Buddhist because so many of the great avant-garde writers in the 50s— my dad worked at an avant-garde magazine with Evan Cannell in the late 50s and early 60s called Contact— it was okay to be Buddhist, and I really tried to be a Buddhist and to find my niche in the Eastern traditions, but I accidentally ended up being a Christian. How did you come about that? What
2: are your spiritual
1: beliefs now? I'm a Christian, and I'm a, so much of my training, though, has been ecumenical that I'll just take truth wherever I can find it. I was really changed and blessed by Ram Dass when I was about 20. In his very early books, Be Here Now. I mean, I was in San Francisco for the 60s, and Be Here Now had a huge impact on me. It blew my mind. Mine too. I just grokked it. I went... Yeah.
2: I met him once. My my older cousin uh, was a a disciple student of his, and she brought me to see him. And he wasn't speaking at the time. He was just writing on the chalkboard. And he looked at me and wrote on the chalkboard, NY. (laughs) I was like, wow, is it that obvious? I think I was Uh. like,
1: Twelve, uh-huh. and he knew I
2: was from New York, uh-huh. and I
1: thought that was really special. Yeah, that sounds right. Well, he was so funny and so honest and so neurotic. We, Neil and I, heard him in um, Maui. We went to a retreat just a few months ago. And um, his position was and is that he never got over a single neuroses. He's just who he is. But he learned to be a man of love and he learned to be a man of awareness. And his whole pitch was that we are loving awareness, whoever you are, wherever you come from. And I loved, he said this so many years ago, but he said, when all is said and done, we're really just walking each other home. And I live by that. It's in almost everything, but it's in almost probably the last five books because it helps me so much. And um, I mean, I remember going to see him and everybody was on the floor and it was just, I was like coming home. And it blew my mind in the best possible way, where it made everything it made truth a lot more spacious than I'd known it to be. I thought I was raised to believe that we were right and to study more so that you could be even more right, and that you could impress even cooler people and more educated people with your how right you were and how brilliant and he just gave me permission to breathe <laughs> to pay attention and breathe and love and serve and uh, and that was kind of where a lot of my past really um, began, although I'd had a, a conversion of sorts. And I went to Goucher in Maryland briefly. For and two you years. dropped out. I dropped out at 19. You yeah, had to be a writer.
2: And a tennis teacher. And a
1: tennis teacher <laughs> and a house cleaner. <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah. But I'd had a really profound, a couple of real profound experiences at um, Goucher with spirituality and religion. and um, But more than anything, more than even being a writer when I grew up, I wanted to not be a Christian. You know, that was like the most important thing because of my parents and my love for my father. And then... Um Few years after he died, let's see. I think I, I think I was thirty-one because I got I, I found this church at thirty-one and converted drunk, and then I got sober the following year. So I had this kind of gap year. But at thirty and thirty-one, I was always hungover, and I would go over to this flea market in this really poor part of town. I lived on a houseboat, literally no bigger than this office we're in, this studio that we're in, and I would go over and I'd hear. A lot of black people and some white people singing songs that I recognized from the Civil Rights Movement, from the Weavers and Pete Seeger and Joan Baez. And it, it was so beautiful. It was a funky little church with buckled linoleum. And so I started going over it because I was just lost and i get really greasy food at the flea market and then i wander over but they didn't hassle me they didn't try to get me to take classes or to sign on and they didn't come visit which was really the most important part of it and little by little i just came to feel this uh, this love and affinity of jesus and i finally just kind of got worn down by my own insanity and damage and self-destruction and and i loved these people and they loved me They just loved me, and they just let me sit there and be there with them. They asked nothing of me, and I caved.
2: (laughs) Do you think that that's ultimately what helped you become sober, to to make the decision to become sober?
1: I'm not sure. I'm not sure because church didn't help me get sober. It really didn't. Jesus, I really don't think, helped me get sober. I think what helped was hitting a really catastrophic bottom and just being so sick and tired of being sick and tired. Every morning I wake up, I just go, oh, my God. I was young, you know, so I could, I would just have a little bit of speed or something, take a hot shower and go for a run. And I was young enough that I could, and then I have a lot of coffee and smoke, the non-habit-forming marijuana that I smoked every day from the time I was about 14. And I could pull it off. And all of a sudden, I couldn't really pull it off anymore. I couldn't tell when I was going to have a blackout. Before, they'd been every so often. And I was having more and more blackouts. And just, there's a line in almost everything about from a guy, that the Got Sober when I did, who said... He was deteriorating faster than he could lower his standards. I that, love that line. It's a great line. And <laughs> Boy, I really, can I relate to that yeah, line. <laughs> I can relate to that too. And um, and I got there, and so I, call, yeah, I did what you do when you've run out of good ideas and, and you just can't bear it one more day. Would I called you, a friend who was sober, and I said, I think I need help.
2: I'd like to read something that you said about right before that moment where you realized, if you don't mind, No, this is what you've written. I just got drunker and drunker and drunker for years. When something would happen, like when your third novel, Joe Jones, came out in 1985 and didn't get great reviews, you'd escape into alcohol. And this is what your rock bottom looked like. You've said 150 people had paid $20 to come to a fundraiser and hear me speak. I hadn't written the speech. I can't remember why. And I had a whole lot to drink. I was stoned, too. I ordered another bottle. The guy poured it. And they came to 15 minutes later from a blackout. I was in the middle of the speech, and I didn't know what I was saying.
1: It was just, I think there were actually more people there. It was a benefit for the San Francisco Public Library, and it was all, it was this literary gathering, and I came to on stage, and I had just said that I dreamt of a colorblind world, like I was channeling Martin Luther King, Mm. and then I I came to, I spritzed awake, and then I said, the only thing I could think of, I said, how are we doing on time? Because there was some hope that I had delivered some sort of speech. Mm. And I got the hugest laugh of my career because the first thing I'd said was that I dreamt of a colorblind world. And the second thing was that, how are we doing on time? <laughs> and people were just looking at me. You know, the color had drained from their face. And, and, uh, but that didn't stop me from drinking. I mean, I kept drinking for another couple years. Yeah, You said
2: that when you were drinking, no matter how conceited you got, you'd still have the self-esteem of a pig. I knew that I had a dark secret life out there in the world doing really weird stuff, and it was taking a toll on my soul. Mm -hmm. How did you come out of that? What was the sense of hope that you had at that time that you could be different?
1: Well... I, I still live in the same county where I was born, so I was just all my relatives, all my cousins, my brothers, my mom, my uncle and aunt, uncles and aunts were all there. So I was loved out of all sense of proportion. I would had three books out. I had a really early re- career. I'd done really well for my age, and and you know I had three books out. I think by thirty or something, and and uh, and so I had all this stuff that was working, and the surface was great. You know, I was young, and I was funny, and I was adorable, and everyone loved me. So I had that going. And then on the inside, I just was—it was Swiss cheese, you know? I was just full of holes, and in the Christian tradition, they'd call it sin-sick, you know? I just had terrible choices, and I was drunk every night, and so I had these two different worlds I was inhabiting, And but the world— where I was loved and appreciated and esteemed and publishing and running and playing tennis, that was working. So it just kept me—it wasn't hope exactly, but it just kept um, making it possible for me to lurch forward, you know. And then when you're an alcoholic and a— and or a drug addict, you're always explaining things to yourself of how things got away from you, and how tonight you're definitely going to just stick to beer, and how um, you're only going to drink beer during the week. You're only going to, and you don't even make it through the first night. But then you know, I, I from from twenty, as I was saying, I, I had this faith in this path of seeking spiritual truth, wherever I could find it. So I had God and I had goodness and I. I had the beginnings of believing that I was loved, even though my life was so crazy, even though I was having tiny boundary issues with men and other people's men. And you know, I was in public a lot, really drunk, but i'm I'm pretty charming for the first couple hours. I'm very funny, and i don't I don't feel shy and self-conscious, and then things would get away from me. And, uh, but I'd always end up at home. At some point, people would put me to bed, and I'd wake up, and the mornings were what were so ghastly, and I didn't have any hope. I read that you didn't want to get sober. Oh, of course I didn't want to get sober. I love being drunk. I love drinking. I love smoking weed. I loved speed. I did a ton of mass. I weighed no pounds, which I really liked. You know, I weighed... 25 pounds less than I do now, and and uh, I just love being stoned. I love. I've had the feeling that I was really connecting with God. I took a lot of acid, and um, it was the way I actually found God was drugs. And it, and when you're drunk or when you're dr- stoned, and you're embarrassing yourself or your family, it's like you sit down with the disease and you chat with the disease about the disease and you kind of neck with the disease and you realize that other people are trying to control you and then you become bitter and resentful and and then you drink because they're stupid and they're not free, they're not artists. They have no idea what it's like to be an artist. And uh, But then finally, you wake up on some morning and nothing was different than it was three days ago or three weeks ago. And you're just done. And you just say, this has got to stop. I, I don't know. I, I, um. It was very painful. And I was afraid that I wouldn't be able to write anymore because the tradition of American, certainly American writers and probably all writers is that you, you should be and get to be an alcoholic. And most of the great writers were. And I didn't write for months and months. I didn't write for eight or nine months. And then I wrote the best book of my life, which was All New People. And um, it turned out when I got sober, it was like getting my windows washed. And I had to learn, I was 32, and I had to learn really basic stuff about how to be a grown-up, how to balance a checkbook. I didn't have a car because I was often so drunk that I had asked myself nicely if I wanted to quit drinking or driving, and I so quit driving. So I'd stop driving, I didn't have a car. I, it's so... Easy to talk yourself into just having one more cool, refreshing beer because you're depressed about your drinking.
2: <laughs> <laughs> well, after all, new people, uh-huh. um, which I know you've said is, is your favorite
1: novel, but no, one it, of your favorite at the time. Oh, yeah. at the time. Yeah, yeah. What is it now? I don't know. I really like *Imperfect Birds*, which is the third part of the Rosie trilogy. With my nonfiction, I really love the book that I wrote with my son. Mm. I'd written Operating Instructions, which was a journal of my son's first year. And then we wrote Some Assembly Required, which was a journal of his son's first year. He had a baby yes. when he was 19. No one asked me. And um, I kind of like them all. I mean, you know, they they really are like kids. And... Some of them are—I don't know—that are, are very successful. But *Imperfect Birds*, I think, might be the last novel I wrote, and I felt like I was starting to get somewhere. You know, that like fifteen or whatever. That at the time, books later, I felt like I could really bring it home. You know, I felt like I could take the reader pretty far out there. It's a lot about teenage girls and and who I was as a teenage girl, and this girl, this character, Rosie Ferguson, and. Why teenage girls were doing what they were doing with men and boys. And the answer seemed to be that the guys liked it. And then the guys liked them more. And, um, and they were getting stoned in our town. It was very scary. And uh and I did a lot of interviews with teenagers and Elizabeth the mother has been sober a while and has a slip and that was really amazing to write about because I didn't. And then Rosie just starts to love the whole world of doing whatever they do with boys and getting stoned and and uh and risky and, and uh and she gets very lost. So the book is about can she can With a mother who's recently had a slip, can the daughter find her way home? In 1994,
2: you released what is considered one of the greatest writing manuals of all time, Bird by Bird, Some Instructions on Writing and Life. And the title is a reference to advice that your father gave your brother when he was working on an overwhelming book report about birds, your dad advised him to simply take it bird by bird. Where did this book come from in you?
1: Well, it's funny because the publisher, which was I think Pantheon, which is part of Random House at the time, didn't want it because I'd had my first New York Times bestseller, which was Operating Instructions about being a single mother, and the whole the publishing industry is really about parlaying your success into another and a bigger one. And they wanted and they thought a novel strategically made more sense because I'd made my name as a novelist. But I've been giving these talks for years called Every Single Thing I Know About Writing. And it was all about these terrible first drafts and bird by bird, which meant my dad had told my fourth grade brother, read about pelicans and then write a paragraph about them in your own words and then illustrate it. And then we're going to do chickadees. Just read about them and then write me a paragraph in your own words. And so that had always been helpful to people. And Mostly at writing conferences, the drive is to convince students that if they do what you say, they'll almost surely get an agent, and the agent will sell their book to Farrar Strauss, and they'll, everyone will make quite a lot of money, and then you'll have really good self-esteem for the rest of your life, and almost <laughs> no one at writing conferences sells their book. Or gets an an agent and sells their book and then makes a lot of money and then has really good esteem for the rest of her life. And I wanted to tell people who wanted to be writers that the writing could give them everything they wanted. The publication wouldn't, and there wasn't going to be enough success, that it was going to have to be an inside job. But I had a list, again. I mean, I, I do like lists. Uh, my dad had always used index cards, and I really, and this is before phones and computers, I always believed in writing on index cards, having paper with you, having a pencil. And I always said if you don't have a pencil with you, When you have a really beautiful idea or image, then God is going to give them to me, give that image to me, because I will have a pencil or a pen and an index card in my back pocket. So I had things that seemed to help people, and I finally convinced them that I could write it really quickly. I think I had seven months to write it because they didn't want it, and I wrote this book. It just poured out of me, but I've been giving these talks forever, so it was pretty easy.
2: So, Anne, of your own artistic journey and how you found yourself, you've said, I've had to stop living unconsciously as if I had all the time in the world. The love and good and the wild and the peace and creation that are you will reveal themselves, but it's harder when they have to catch up to you in roadrunner mode. Mm-hmm. That scared me because I'm always running and I am i don't want to lose that. So you, you stopped. You said one day you stopped. I began consciously to break the rules I learned in childhood. I wasted more time as a radical act. I stared off into space more, into the middle distance like a cat. This is when I have my best idea my deepest insights. I wasted more paper printing out instead of reading things on the computer screen. And how did that change you? How did that create this new mode of of living?
1: It's natural and it's right that you live as if you have all the time in the world. But when you get a little bit older, like by, I was 25 when my dad died. Boy, did that pop my balloon. And I started to realize you have no idea you have no idea how long you're going to live, and you have to get serious about about not squandering this precious, this one precious life, as far as we know, that you're going to have. And I realized there were all these lessons that I'd learned as a child, and the one was that if it was important, you'll remember it, mm-hmm. right, so you didn't have to write down. But I was just like this when I was seven. I was just a space case. I was always—I always, always joked that I was absent-minded professor, and I kind of had my head in the clouds. And I was just so absent-minded. I always got lost places. I had to wear my phone number safety pin to my clothes because I would wander off and get. And um, then, then there were these rules: don't waste paper, don't waste paper, because the Sierra Club was coming up, and my parents were very Sierra Club focused and stuff. And don't waste paper, and don't waste any time. And you, if you were sitting at the table in the kitchen. And you were just thinking about how something that had gone on at school or at a friend's family, maybe the parents had had a fight, which our parents didn't do. You'd be just sitting there, kind of work, you know, working it like clay, trying to get, trying to figure out what it all meant, and a grown-up would come along, usually your mother or father, and they'd say, don't you have anything to do? Get your homework done? <laughs> and so you were discouraged from spacing out and thinking, but if you're going to be a writer, you just have to space out. You have to stare off into the middle distance like a cat, and I had to unlearn that, and you have to waste paper. I always had my students overprint out And then send money to the Sierra Club, and um, and I always work off of. I almost always try to work off of paper because I also love the sound of paper. I love pencil on paper. I love that scritch scritch scritch. You know, it's the sound of paper and pencil that it's ancient and it's sacred. It's a sacred act. And there was a third thing that you couldn't waste time. You couldn't waste paper. I can't remember the third one.
2: Ours was there of starving children in Biafra.
1: Oh, yeah. And I, uh, my mother had grown up on the docks of Liverpool, really, really poor. And so. There was this huge pressure around food that you—and it's 50s, too, and I'm older than you are, but you absolutely ate what was on your plate. And, of course, having grown up in Liverpool, we ate a lot of liver, and we ate Brussels sprouts, so I didn't know they were awful. I grew up (laughs) liking them, but then you couldn't let people know that you felt this way about them because they weren't really considered food by, like, American kids. I mean, I was American, but— uh, we got sent to our room if we didn't finish it. If we cried or if we had any strong feelings at the table, if you complain, like to be a child in the 50s and early 60s to say you really didn't like green beans, like your parents' mouths would have dropped open. I mean, they would have just looked at each other. You know, they would have. My mother would have laughed till she wet herself if I had said, I I actually don't like that. We got sent to our room without eating. So all the women I know in my generation have eating disorders. But they didn't say, you know what? Are you full? Why don't you just sit here a while? It's fine. It didn't come up. It wasn't fine. They took it personally. Right? It was crazy. So there were so, so many rules that I had to unlearn as I got older if I wanted to. Be okay and have a big juice girls weren't allowed to be big and juicy with math and science. For one thing, you could be a great student till fourth grade, and that was once math and science got really serious. And there was this subtle pressure. I wasn't supposed to do better than my big brother, and I always did. It was like you were infringing on, on boy land. Yeah, you had to rein yourself in. Yeah.
2: And I want to talk about your newest book, Almost Everything, Notes on Hope. So, Anne, in 2015, on the eve of your 61st birthday, you decided you would write down every single thing you know, which was a list of 14 points published on Facebook. It went viral. It was shared 100,000 times, received more than 11,000 comments, and eventually led to a TED Talk on the subject. And I'm wondering if you would be up for reading a few of the points on the list.
1: Yeah. I really made I made a list because I wanted to share with my ni- my little grandson who was 6 at the time and my niece what I thought might really help them as they're coming up because there's just so little truth out there. And um and so I'm just going to read these three and you can see the truth in these three points. Wonderful. One, Life is a precious, unfathomably beautiful gift, and it is filled with heartbreaking sweetness and beauty, floods and babies, and acne and Mozart all swirl together. Two, almost everything will work again if you unplug it for a few minutes, including you. Three, there is almost nothing outside of you that will help in any kind of lasting way, unless you are waiting for an organ. You can't buy, achieve, or date it. This is the most horrible truth. I'll read a little bit of the fourth. Well, let's read the first sentence of the next three. Everyone is screwed up, broken, clingy, and scared, even the people who seem to have it more or less together. They are much more like you than you would believe, so try not to compare your insides to their outsides. Families, hard, 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 no matter how cherished and astonishing they may also be. And last, grace. Grace is spiritual WD-40. It's water wings. The mystery of grace is that God loves Dick Cheney and me exactly as much as he or she loves your grandchild. Go figure. The movement of grace is what changes us, heals us in our world. To summon grace, say, help, and then buckle up. Grace won't look like Casper the Friendly Ghost, but the phone will ring, or the mail will come, and then against all odds you will get your sense of humor about yourself back. Laughter really is carbonated holiness, even if you are sick of me saying it.
2: And this is one of your great gifts to the world. It really is. I am... I, I, I can't even begin to tell you how many times I've listened to this talk of oh, these thank points you. Um, it's this book has been described now as the book we need from Anne Lamont <laughs> um, and in the prelude to notes on hope you write there is the absolute hopelessness we face that everyone we love will die even our newborn granddaughter even as we trust and know that love will give rise to growth miracles and resurrection love and goodness and the world's beauty and humanity are the reasons we have hope yet no matter how how much we recycle, believe in our Priuses, and abide by our local laws, we see that our beauty is being destroyed, crushed by greed and cruel stupidity, and we also see love and tender hearts carry the day. Fear, against all odds, leads to community, to bravery, and right action, and these give us hope. Are you feeling any optimism in these times, or how can you feel optimism in these times?
1: I always feel optimism, and um, I also am am absolutely stunned and horrified by the Trump administration. There, I said it. I wasn't going to name names, but I'm horrified. I'm angry. I march. I send money off to organizations that I hope will bring it all down, and, um, and I feel just like everybody does about it. And I also remember, as a radical act, how much is really beautiful and touching and precious. And, you know, I go outside and I make myself look up. And... The first line of the book is that I'm stockpiling antibiotics for I was the apocalypse. Ask you that at the end. Yeah, e- <laughs> you even <still> as <laughs> even as I'm waiting for the paper whites to bloom in the kitchen, and all, the second chapter is that all truth is paradox, and these are terrible, terrible times, and they're also the best times. I fell in love at the ripe old age of I'm, I'm getting married and. I'll be 65 three days earlier (laughs) than my marriage, and he's a year younger and three months and a year so that he'll be 63 and I'll be 65. And I have an unbelievably fabulous grandchild who lives with us half-time, and the medicine that has come up has saved more people than I can. We have had literally— Miracles upon miracles at our church, because of chemotherapy and vaccines, I love vaccines. I love Cipro, I want to say I love um that I just got a shingles vaccine i will I will be so happy for the rest of my life every day that I don't get shingles <laughs> and so and I'm loved I mean the people that love me are just. Great people. I can either believe what I secretly think about myself on down days, or I can believe what my, how my friends see me, which is as a magical, brilliant, tender-hearted person. It's a, tr- a bit of a choice to have hope. Well, you've said this is how you
2: describe finally coming into yourself. Mess, failure, mistakes, disappointment, and extensive reading. Limbo, indecision, setbacks, addiction, public embarrassment, and endless conversations with your best women friends. The loss of people without whom you could not live. The loss of pets that left you reeling, dizzying betrayals, but much greater loyalty. And overall, choosing as your motto, William Blake's line, that we are here to learn to endure the beams of love. I think that's just perfection. Perfection. Thank you. Thank you. Um, <laughs> since you talked about Neil, one quote of yours that I read that was absolutely hilarious that was that you were thinking of registering with Walgreens or Jack's Drugs in San Anselmo, which has a great selection of orthotics and durable medical <laughs> equipment. <laughs> I mean, you're only 65, Well, you're going to be only 65. That's not so bad. <laughs>
1: Yeah, I know, but we don't really need anything. We don't need more plates, you know. We don't need silverware or or cloth napkins. Cipro, give Anne and Neil Cipro.
2: Cipro and a cane, yeah. So I have two last questions for you. The first is, you've written that you have to make mistakes to find out who you aren't. Mm -hmm. You take the action and the insight follows. Mm -hmm. You don't think your way into becoming yourself. Mm -hmm. Does hope help?
1: Well, I think one of the reasons I have so much hope is I see that against all odds we can change. And people, when I was a kid, and kind of through my 20s, people would say, oh, people don't change, you know. And it's such a crock. Who said that? It's not true. We do change. We soften. Our hearts soften. That's the main thing that happens. And we start to be much, much more affectionate with ourselves and and forgiving. We learn self-forgiveness. We learn radical self-care. And we do change. And that gives me hope how far I have come from when I was just the most... Anxious and terrified people-pleasing person to now where I really don't care and my socks don't really don't always match like Pippi long stockings, and I forgive myself I still might get very cross with myself or Frustrated or whatever, but it might last an hour now instead of entire decades, you know?
2: (laughs) Yes. So um, that gives me hope. Well, that actually leads me to my final question. You've said that you've learned to stop caring what people think of you. Mm -hmm. And in doing so, you embraced your authentic self and found your audience. So my question is, how the heck did you do that?
1: (laughs) How do you get there? I would say I've stopped caring what people think about me until I have each new book published. Because then Ah, I become just frantic. And um, if I get a bad review, I can't go on. I just cannot go on. And I, I feel like I'm gonna have the vapors. and, and sometimes I tear up and then um, and I just feel really overwhelmed and I feel that it's all awful and I hate life. But it lasts about an hour. That's good. Yeah. But then you might get another bad review. I mean, I'm so in the wrong profession because I hate being criticized. And I just shrink up as like a snail having salt poured on it. You know, I just—but it gets so much better. That's what I'll say. I have a friend named David Roach who made up a church called The the Church of 80% Sincerity. And I would say I'm 80% better. And 80% of the time, I really, really don't care. 20% 20% of the time I still do, but as you pointed out, I'm young. Yeah. My dad yeah. used to say, if you're
2: 80% happy, it's okay. Yeah. So it's really we're true. okay then. And your book is quite remarkable, so thank, thank you for that. You. Thank you. Anne Lamott, thank you so much for helping to illuminate the world we live in, and thank you for joining me today on Design
1: Matters. Thank you so much. That was a great interview. Thank you. Thank you, Debbie.
2: Anne Lamott's latest book is almost everything notes on hope and you must follow her on twitter at Anne lamont this is the 14th year i've been doing design matters and i'd like to thank you for listening and remember we can talk about making a difference we can make a difference or we can do both i'm debbie millman and i look forward to talking with you again soon
0: for more information about design matters or to subscribe to our newsletter go to debbie If you love this podcast, please consider contributing to our Drip Kickstarter community. Members get early access to the podcast, transcripts of every interview, invitations to live interviews, Q&A sessions with guests, and a brand new annual magazine. You can learn more about this at d.rip slash Debbie slash Millman. That's d.rip slash Debbie dash Millman. And if you really like this podcast, please write a review in the iTunes store and link to the podcast on social media. Design Matters is produced by Curtis Fox Productions. The show is published exclusively by designobserver.com and recorded at the School of Visual Arts Masters in Branding program in New York City. The editor-in-chief of Design Matters Media is Zachary Pettit, and the art director is Emily Wyland. Generous support for Design Matters Media is provided by Adobe XD and Wix.com.